Maybe we'll just talk about your general smarty pantsness. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by Component One, makers of Widgmo. If you need stunning UI elements or awesome graphs and charts, then go to widgmo.com and check them out. Don't panic, they'll be paid for most of them. This podcast is sponsored by JetBrains, makers of WebStorm. Whether you're working with Node.js or building the front end of your web application, WebStorm is the tool for you. It has great code quality and code exploration tools and works with HTML5, Node, TypeScript, CoffeeScript, Harmony, Less, Sass, Jade, JSLint, JSHint, and the Google Closure Compiler. Check it out at jetbrains.com slash webstorm. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 69 of the JavaScript Java Show. This week on our panel we have Jameson Dance. Hello friends. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv and we have a special guest and that is Jake Archibald. Hello. Jake, do you want to introduce yourself for the folks yeah. who haven't heard of you before? Yeah, sure thing. I'm, I'm, uh, I work on the Google Chrome team as part of DevRel. Uh, so what I'm doing there is a, a combination of like speaking at conferences about a particular stuff. Like I'm doing a lot on performance at the moment, but I also do a lot of uh, standards work. You know, where I've done a lot with, uh, uh, well, a, a, an alternative to application cache, which I, which I will be talking about, uh, but also looking at things like script loading uh, and, and some of the, the resource priority stuff. Cool. So it sounds like you're uh, smart on a number of levels then. Or, or dumb at all. You know, I, I can only say what I work on. I don't know if I'm any good at it. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we brought you on to talk about the application cache. I'm not completely sure I know what is totally involved there. I mean, is it just the, the cache like you clear the browser cache cache or is it something else? Well, the, the the aim for the application cache uh, was to let you make a site that that works offline. You know, so so you've got this. We've got the HTTP cache, and and that works in a manner of speaking. But if you have, um, say, a website where you have uh, you've, you've cached your JavaScript, you've cached your CSS, you've cached your HTML page and some images, that's great. But the user will visit another website, and the browser will go and, and delete the CSS file from your site from the cache just to make room for the stuff from this other site. And that means that if we were just going to use the HTTP cache as a, uh, for making work, things work offline, people go to your site, your HTML's there, your images are there, your JavaScript's there, but your CSS is not, and that's going to break your site. The idea for the, the application cache was to, to create a, an offline-first uh, model. So, you know, it, it, it's going to try and work the same whether you're online or you're offline. It will kind of uh, appear immediately, but... Um, it, it, the idea is it will um, it, it, it will work when it's offline. It will guarantee a particular set of files will work offline together. Wait, did I misunderstand you? Did you just say that the CSS isn't cached by, no, it, by it, HTTP caching? Or are no, you no, saying it, if you just sent the wrong headers or something? Well, it will be cached, but there is nothing to say that it won't be deleted to make room for something else later. Oh, so, sure, sure. So, right. so, 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 yeah, so the difference with the application cache is you can say, uh, this is the set of files my site needs, and you are the browser is not allowed to delete a single one of them. So if the browser gets into a total memory panic, like there's not enough room on your phone or whatever, it's allowed to delete the lot, um, but it's not allowed to delete single entries. And that's that's the kind of uh, sort of atomic nature of it. So um, you can kind of when a select section of 
your offline site uh, caches, you can rely on those files to be there together or not at all. Okay, so it gives you a lot more granular control over what mm. exactly is cached instead of just hoping that since they came recently, it'll still be there. Well, it's, it's, so it, it, you, my, you get to provide a list of files. Sorry. Yeah. I was going to say, my understanding is that the browser cache is there to make your uh, web experience faster. So, um, hmm. so it caches it so that it doesn't have to download it a bunch of times when you're navigating across the same website, multiple pages, and each page tells you to download that CSS file again. It just has it in memory. But the browser cache, that, or the application cache, is a cache of all the files needed to make the website run even when you're not online. And so yes. effectively it, it intervenes on behalf of the web server if it can't reach it. Yeah, you can think of it as a kind of as a layer between the the browser making requests and the standard HTTP cache and the network. So if you're on a site that uses the application cache, it will go straight to the application cache for for files that you know that, that it has, and then you can configure it using a you know a lot of a kind of a weird manifest format it has to tell it oh if that fails you can go on to the network, but by default it won't. And this is the, this is my problem with application caches. It's full of gotchas. I don't. Have you guys? I don't know if this is just a a European game. Do you have the the board game Downfall? It's like it's a kids game where you're turning a series of cogs to move little counters from like the top to the bottom. The idea is to get all your counters from the top of the board to the bottom. But on the other side, the other player has a very similar set of controls. And when you turn something. Um, you, you might be affecting their board and you might be helping them out. And that's kind of how I feel when I'm using application caches. I'm doing all of this stuff that I can see, but there's loads of stuff happening in the background that I don't know about until, you know, things start falling out the bottom and I know I've lost the game. Uh, yeah, that's my problem with it. There's not enough control. So, so what oh. does it do and what doesn't it do then? So you provide a link to a... Um, to, to the manifest format. And this, this manifest file is just a, a kind of basic text file. It's, it's a new format, you know. And it's kind of good that they didn't think, oh, let's use XML, because, you know, it's, XML is a horrible thing to use, but it's kind of a shame that they didn't use JSON. But, so, so it's kind of, it's a new format, but it is extremely simple. It's just a list. And, and you, uh, list out the files that you, your, your site needs, uh, to work offline. And one of the, one of the odd bits of behavior is any page that, um, points to this manifest will also cache offline as well, um, and that's that's a real problem because if you're if you serve an HTML file and it has a username in, but then the user's session expires or they log out, it's still going to have cached that version of the HTML with the the username in, and, and this is where things start falling down because you, you don't really have the control uh, you, you need to, to kind of solve that problem. Hmm. That's interesting. Another question I had is how does it work with single page apps. So with those, I, I imagine it would just cache your JavaScript and your CSS and stuff. But what about all the JSON that you're requesting from the server? Um, so can you request that that be cached just in case the site goes down? So at least they'll still be able to browse around, even if it'll be out of date, possibly. So single page apps is actually where it works reasonably well. It, it, it's kind of what it was designed for. So, so yeah, you would you, in in your manifest, you, you'd have your single page which would link to the manifest, so it would be cached by default. 
and then inside the file you would link to your CSS, your JavaScript, and any images that are used by either of those. And yeah, and then you can also list in there um, JSON endpoints. But if you list them in there, then they will uh, they will be cached, and every request you make to it will pull back the same version. You know, so if you were building something like Twitter and you have a JSON feed of tweets, the first time it's fetched, that's what you're going to get um, until an update happens. And this is this is where it gets a little bit funky. An update is triggered by changing the manifest file in some way. And it, it's just anything that makes it not byte-for-byte byte identical. So the, the kind of normal way of doing it is by um, adding a hash symbol, which is a comment in a manifest file, and then adding a version number. And then you can update that version number, and that will trigger the, the browser to go and update um, all of those files and, and fetch new versions. So if you wanted to cache your, your server resources or your, your dynamic stuff like JSON, it seems like you would have to try and maybe detect if you had connectivity. And then if you didn't have connectivity, then, well, how would that work? Is it- so uh, detecting connectivity doesn't work, right? This, this is one of the... There is a JavaScript API called online, uh, navigated online, but it's um, pretty useless. It's, it's rubbish. So the, uh, the reason is, like, what is offline? You know, if I'm if I've got no signal on my mobile phone, am I offline? You'd probably say yes. Uh, but if I'm connected to Wi-Fi, a Wi-Fi router, but that router isn't connected to the internet, am I offline? You probably am. But what if I'm just accessing the website and there's a proxy error in between and a DNS failure, so I can't actually get your site to, to that website? I am offline, and the only way of testing that is to try and make the connection, and that makes it sure. So, I mean, you, you can't sort you, you can't do that for like a whole site, because right? sure. especially if you've got like a kind of middling mobile signal, uh, that can take minutes until it finally gives up and goes, oh yeah, I'm probably offline. So, with the JSON case, there is actually a section of the manifest file where you can specify a fallback section, and this is where you say, for this set of URLs, I want you to try the network first, and if the network request fails, oh. here's another file that I want you to use instead, and that could okay. just like a JSON object saying, yeah nothing found or, you know, offline or, or whatever, connection failed. That's cool. I was thinking about all these ways to manually change the app cache file in different situations. That's cool that they've considered it already. Hmm. It's, it's really... So, so when, when you do the update, I mean, this is one of the gotchas, is that if, um, if you update your site, like you change the heading or the CSS or the JavaScript, any of the files you've cached, the next time you go and visit the page, you're going to get the old version. And this is because the application cache works offline first. So, you know, you hit the page, it will pull all the stuff out of the cache, and then it will go and look at the manifest. And if the manifest file has changed in any way, that's when it's going to go and start looking for updates to those files. So you're not going to get an update. You're not going to see your update until the second refresh, presuming the update happened fine. So you're running off of the application cache, period. Yeah, that's, and that's the right way of doing things, really, because you, it means it's fast. And that's that. If you're building something to work offline, it really has to be um, for most use cases. For it needs to be offline first. You, you, it's so obviously I'm, I'm sort of really into the progressive enhancement thing. This is progressive enhancement first. It's all, you, you need to treat the network connection as an enhancement. You you start off assuming it's not there, and it, apps on your phone will be like this. If you open the Facebook app on your phone, you'll get stuff. You'll get the last stuff you looked at. And then it's going to go and do a network connection and get the new stuff. And that's that's the best way to build something to work offline. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, it seems like you really have to design your application around this. It seems like it would be difficult to shoehorn in after the fact. So, so when we did uh, m.lanyard.com, which is the, the kind of 
where I got all the experience for this. Uh, that's, yeah, we, we couldn't retrofit this onto an existing site. There are a few older articles that suggest you can use the application cache as like a, a way of enhancing performance of the site. Don't, no, no, don't, just don't do that. You're just, you're just inviting a world of hurts for what isn't really a lot of benefit. It's, it, it's such a, it changes the behavior of your page so much. It's not worth it at all. But I mean, this is one of the things we're trying to fix. You know, we, we, we've kind of seen that app cache hasn't really, hasn't really done the job it was supposed to do. And, and the reason for this is it's such a high level API and it's a high level API that was created before we really knew what people wanted to do offline. We didn't really know what people, how people wanted to build offline apps. So it kind of, a lot of assumptions were made, an API was created and it doesn't really work. Uh, what we're trying to do is we're, we're, something we're going to take to the, the WG, something we've been working on, something Alex Russell has been sort of spearheading is a, a low-level API where it's a bit more typing. It's all done in JavaScript rather than a manifest format, but you are telling the network layer exactly what to do. Um, you, you get an event, a JavaScript event, saying this, and it's, it all happens in a web worker. Um, you register it for a section of URLs, and when the request is made to one of those URLs, it goes into an event in that file, and it kind of goes, this, this URL's been requested. What do you want to do? And if you don't do anything, the normal behavior happens. But then you can say, oh, like, have a look in this cache, have a look in IDB, have a look here. You try and try and do this. Tell you what, let's, let's take some JSON data that I've stored in IDB and let's render it with mustache and here's a string, serve that instead. Or, hey, try the network first. And if that fails, go down to the, um, the, the navigation controller cache and fetch it from there. And I think that's a much better model. It's, it's, it's more typing, but you get to do what you want. Yeah, you that can. is. Pretty amazing. That sounds like, so we've, we've tried to do something a little bit like that in our app where we just kind of replace the HTTP request stuff with our own library that has built-in caching. Mm. And it's kind of a headache, but it's also really powerful to give you a lot more granular, granular control over what happens when, a, when it looks like a request is happening. Well, it's the kind of thing I would expect people would build. Well, you know, if, if this takes off, and I hope it does, but it's the kind of thing I see people building libraries around. Sure. So you, you, you might get, like, Express, a JS might have a, like, you'll come up with a controller that will share data between the uh, the server and the, and the client really easily and just, you know, help you use the same model you're used to using there, um, but on the client as well, because it is just like using a local server. Uh, and, and and then we can sort of look at what the, the commonality between all these libraries is and add higher level APIs to make that stuff faster. It's sort of the stuff that happened with jQuery, right? You know, we looked at jQuery and, and then, you know, we, we got things like um, Query Selector All because we saw what all the JavaScript libraries were doing. And I think that will happen here as well. It so, sounds a lot like the, so that just that philosophy of providing low level APIs that people can use to do things that are, that, that you wouldn't think to provide high-level APIs for. Sounds like um, that thing Yehuda was talking about, extend the web forward. I don't know if he mm. kind of coined this or if he was talking about things other people talked about, but where browsers expose low-level JavaScript APIs instead of provide these high-level things that are, are more limited in what they can do. Mm. So that's a really cool idea. I'm glad that, glad that that's happening. So it's a double-edged sword as well. I mean, I, I do like high-level APIs, and it's something I'm, I'm wanting to have a to get a higher-level API for script loading at the moment because it's not. I, I don't think script loading's great at the moment, uh, especially for you know having different dependencies. But we, we've got loads of evidence there. We, we've we've seen what people yeah, want yeah, to do, exactly. whereas we yeah, don't with offline. So, yeah, the low-level APIs enable you to figure out what the best high-level API would be instead of having to get it right the first time. Exactly. 
So one thing that I, I keep uh, kind of mentally running into a roadblock here, maybe you can explain your way around it, is um, the single-page apps usually rely on some sort of data source on the back end. Mm-hmm. So it's going to have to continue to make calls to the back end, and if it can't reach them, then do you just use the uh, offline storage that's part of the HTML5 spec, or do you do you just kind of let people know you're running in offline mode and you're not going to be able to get your data, or how do you handle that? Well, in application cache, you've got this fallback thing uh, where you can say for a particular URL, try the network. If that fails, use this other thing. And that's kind of the best you can you can do there. With the navigation controller, you do what you want. You know, If I was building an app, I would have all of my core files, like my, my HTML, my CSS, my JavaScript. That would come straight from the cache. When I see those requests coming through, I'll just serve it. So navigation controller also includes a, a, an atomic cache, like application cache, um, but you can have many atomic caches. So if you were building a game, you can have one cache for like the core stuff, a separate cache for level one, and a separate cache for level two. So you can have a, a situation where once you've you know, got the core assets in level one, it will work offline until you hit level two. But you can then start loading that stuff in the background. You know, it's, 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 you can say, like, this is the set of files that level one requires. This is the set level two requires. When all of that set has, when all of the level one set has finished, that cache is okay to use for level one. Uh, so, it, yeah, so things like the data sources, like, you know, uh, recent tweets or whatever, my, the command I'd say to navigation controller is go to the network for it. And if that fails, just have this, uh, you know, use an old copy. But in reality, you would serve up a, you, you would allow the, the client to make two requests. You would make a request for the cached version first, display that, and then you would try a network request. And if that fails, fail silently because you've got data on the page now. Right. And if you, if you succeed, then do you just update what's there? Yep. So the, this controller, the navigation controller runs in a web worker. Uh, so it can, uh, it can communicate with the windows the same way that uh, shared workers do currently. But in, in this case, you would just be using a, making an XHR request. And if it failed, the client would know, well, I've got the cache data and that's probably okay. But then you would have a, another case where you say the user explicitly pressed the refresh button, uh, to initiate this request. So I'm actually going to display an error message saying, you know, network failure. I, you're probably offline or something's gone down or whatever. So one application that I see for this, and I'm sure that there are plenty of others, and we'll talk about that, but uh, one application I see for this is, and, and I bring this example up every so often, is my dad's a dentist, and I keep having this dream of building a, a, a dental office management software that doesn't totally suck. And I would hmm. like to write one on the web so that you can kind of get to it anywhere, but then if you're offline and your office depends on it, then you're in trouble. So I've, I've been thinking that this application cache might be a good way to go and then tie into the HTML5 local storage so that, you know, you can continue to operate with the, the local storage stuff. Is, is that even a, a feasible idea or am I kind of making stuff up? If you're building a single page app, you're, you're not, and I, you know, you know, after the, the article I wrote about, I, I wrote a ranty article about um, progressive enhancement recently, so I'm kind of like saying with gritted teeth, yes, single-page apps are not actually that bad if you're dealing with application cache, but that's the application cache's fault. Um, yeah, you could build something like that. You um, you would need to go and... The, the, the problem with application cache is it has this really simple-looking API, this manifest format, but you really need to go and you know read some articles about it or look at the spec to know 
the impact of adding a line to that because it's more than you think and that's that's the problem we've got with it is it's, it's too much magic the the idea of the navigation controller is it's a it's a bring your own magic api you know there's there's no it's not going to do anything without you you telling it but for the kind of app you're you're talking about yeah I, I, if you could it would be painful but possible all right cool so i have a question um, that is a little less theoretical. How do you go about actually generating these files? Do they allow wildcards, or do you have to specify each resource individually? Are you talking about the manifest files? Yeah, the manifest files. Sorry. So, yeah, you, you can... There are generators. I know that there's um, some of the... the, the there's a, I think there's a grunt task for it. I think there's yeah, a, a yeoman will do stuff like that. Yeah. Crawl your site and find all the resources and stuff. Yeah, but it is a. You have to add each file you want to cache in there. Um, you can't because the problem is if you add a wildcard, uh, you know that that doesn't really mean anything to the web because there you know there isn't a directory listing. It can't it can't really go and I suppose it, it could go and find links within that file and, and crawl, but uh, it can't do that. And I think you know that would sure. be unpredictable behavior anyway. You can um, the only times you can apply a wildcard is. But by so here's a here's one of the gotchas of application cache. If you use the application cache, it will block all network requests from the site. It will only use stuff that is in the cache. And, and the the way you get around that because it's that kind of ridiculous default behavior. The the reason that behavior is in there is it's supposed to make it easier to debug because it then will behave exactly the same online as it does offline. The way you get around that is by adding a network section, and you can either there add in specific things you want to be allowed to make network requests for, or you can just add a single star, and that means anything that's not in the cache, go to the network for it. So this seems like it would encourage some other web best practices, right? If you have a million little button images, then your app cache file, your cache manifest file is going to be kind of huge. Yes, so maybe it would encourage you to make a sprite sheet or something like that. But, but here's where it all falls down, is like any page that points to a manifest file is going to be cached itself. And if you have a different query string on that, then th- that's going to be a different page. And that's going to count. So if you've got a search page, you know, or something that might come in with some metadata from another page, that's, that's going to, that's going to cache independently. And so there was a, a Mark Pilgrim when he wrote, um, dive into HTML5, he did a section on, uh, on offline, and one of the examples he did is he, here's how you'd make an offline Wikipedia. Just you know, in, have a manifest file that has all the JavaScript and CSS, and then link every page to the manifest. So then, as the user explores Wikipedia, they are going to build up <laughs> they every cache page. all of Wikipedia. And that can you kind of think, oh, that's that's cool, I suppose. But there's no way of flushing this. There's no way of getting rid of pages from that. And as soon as you change a character in the manifest, because say you're going to update your CSS file, the browser is going to go, oh. I need to update everything I've cached. And that could be a 100 HTTP request. I don't know. How, how many pages have you looked at on Wikipedia? It could be a 1,000 HTTP requests just to update that one CSS file. It's, oh, it's, so, so anything connected to this cache manifest file will get, will, it will recache yes. when the new cache manifest file is downloaded. Yes, it will update everything. Now, and it will allow the browser to go to the normal HTTP cache to update. So, you know, if you've changed the file name, if you, if you far future cache your CSS and your JavaScript and your imagery, which you should, and you've got like a unique file name for them, if you change a, a, a unique file name for the, the CSS, so you've essentially, from the, in terms of the manifest, you've removed one CSS file and added one by changing its file name, it will do that pretty well because when it goes to look for an update for the JavaScript file, it's far future cached, it will just bounce down to the HTTP cache and go, yeah, that's fine. 
but then HTTP pages, right? You, you, we tend to not allow them in the cache. It's, we kind of say must revalidate or something. Uh, so, uh, yeah, you'll end up with this, these hundred pages you visited, thousand pages you visited being updated every time you change one of your static files. It seems like you could be pretty malicious with that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if you, yes, if you, you were an evil person, an evil web developer. Oh, I, like I, a, didn't I, I thought, I thought I saw an attack where it would fill up your hard drive. Was that, that a, was, an experiment that I saw? Someone, yeah. someone did a demo thing. What was that using? That was was that using the file system API or local storage? It was it was something. I, I think it was it, it was one of the ones where it was dependent on a where it was you you get a certain amount of data for your subdomain, but you know it's very easy yeah. to have a wildcard subdomain, so you can just trigger all this stuff and, and in little five megabyte chunks, you can uh, make someone's laptop melt through the table and never work again or, or whatever. It's not that disastrous, but not that anyone would ever do this as anything mm. besides an experiment. Please don't. But um, so it it sounds like this is a step in the right direction, but it's still very limited. Do you do you have examples? So you said the Lanyard mobile site is one example of of something that's using this. Well, do you have other examples of sites that are using the Uh, application cache really well? The the FT mobile app does it really really well. And that's pretty much, I mean, there's, there's very few, uh, large content-based sites that have really attempted this because it's just not, it's just too painful. Let's say it, it, FT and, uh, m.lanyard.com. Are there any best practices for what kinds of things that you should put in there? So, for example, our, our site has tons and tons of image assets and it's, it'd just be impossible to cache them all. Yeah, um, this is where it fails. This is, this is the problem. I mean, and this is where navigation controller comes in because you can, just you'll just be listening for requests and you you do what you want with that and that includes building the cache up so it would be very easy to implement on a like a site like wikipedia having a, a read later button and when you click that read later button it goes off into the uh the web worker and says look the user wants to um to cache this page and then maybe the um the navigation controller would make a request to uh an api to get a list of files that are needed and then it downloads all those files and creates a cache and then it knows next time that page is requested it can fetch it from there uh, that's something we can't do with the application cache at the moment you, we, the way we did it with m.lanyard.com is we we use local storage for all of that we were storing json data in there it's we were only using the application cache for the static assets for like the javascript and the css and the sort of sprite imagery um, and then when the user said, oh, I'm, I'm interested in this conference or I'm attending this conference, we'd go and get a, a JSON data object and put that in local storage along with uh, the, the templates that were needed to render it. And it's a horrible hack. It shouldn't have had to be like that. It's, uh, and it won't be like that in future. So when you talk about navigation controller, um, I'm not sure that I completely follow what you're talking about. It, it looks like it's a JavaScript library, but what exactly does it add to the application cache? It, it's not a library. This, uh, see, I, I guess you, you, you found it on, on GitHub. It's github.com slash slightly off slash navigation controller. This is a spec we're working on. This is something we're wanting to take to the, the, the WG in the next few days. Oh, okay. And, and it is, it, it's something that will happen natively. It will build upon, it was, it kind of based on a, a shared worker. Uh, model. It'll kind of, it'll give you the application cache. Well, it, we hope to give people the application cache they always wanted. You know, it's full control. It's very low level, but it, it's something you can, uh, you know, so, so you can tell it exactly what you want. So hopefully it'll cover more use cases. We're, we're hoping to have a, 
we're doing some prototype work in Chrome on it at the moment. So we're hoping at the end of the week we'll be able to release a binary, certainly for uh, Mac OS X with, with some of this uh, work in it. So you can kind of have a play with some of it. It's, it's very much in progress and we're, we're, but we're about, we're at the stage where we're going to take it to the WG and see what other people think of it. But it's, you know, it's there. It's in the open. It's been developed entirely in the open. So you can take a look at it now and feedback. We've, a kind of interesting thing we did is we developed the, um, the specification in TypeScript rather than like IDL. Cause we just think that being able to do this stuff in something that's familiar to developers, cause TypeScript is just, you know, JavaScript with some extra type information. It makes it much easier for sort of standard developers to get involved. Uh, people who aren't sort of spec junkies, they can sort of go in, Oh yeah, that's a function. That's a, that's a class that inherits from this. This, this is written in language that I'm kind of familiar with. And I think. I mean, Microsoft developed TypeScript, but it's actually really useful for doing this, just kind of specking something out. Why, why is that? And I, I know I'm getting a little off topic, topic but I'm, I'm kind of curious. Why is TypeScript so good for exploring this kind of stuff? It just means that there's a standardized way of defining uh, what the return type would be from this, uh, what the type of parameters are expected to be. Because uh, it's something JavaScript doesn't give us, we'd end up doing it in comments. But uh, you know, if we're doing it in TypeScript, then TypeScript will validate a lot of that. So it's, it's, it's been really nice for that. Okay. I have an unrelated question. I'll, I'll let Chuck decide if this is too off-topic or not. Do you want to talk about <laughs> um, about Jake's controversial blog post about progressive enhancement? <laughs> no, go ahead. So, well, do you want to summarize kind of what, what, you, what your points were? Yeah, yeah, sure thing. I mean, there are probably people listening that don't even know what progressive enhancement means. It's kind of a throwback we, we term. We did so. talk about it with jQuery Mobile. This is true, but yeah. Anyway, I, I love this because I was uh, I was having a chat about this before, and and I had a theory on on why progressive enhancement is done less these days. And I think what you said there really sort of confirms that by calling it a, a throwback term, because this is something in the you know two thousands that was kind of decided. Oh yeah, this is you know this is the fast way of building things. The idea of uh, you start you, you serve HTML from the server and your CSS and then your JavaScript. And your JavaScript will go in and um, add the behavior to a particular bits of the page. But the idea is that, so you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, everyone has JavaScript on. And that's true. Well, to be fair, no one has JavaScript until your JavaScript is downloaded. And so if you are blocked on displaying anything from your JavaScript, that's a major performance penalty. You know, if, if you're serving HTML, as the HTML is coming down, before it's even fully downloaded, we can start displaying, the browser can start displaying uh, that data on the page. The, the CSS file comes in, we can start doing that, and it, it, you get this progressive rendering experience. It might take the same amount of time to complete as a, a JavaScript application, but because the you know, it, 10, say, 5 seconds of a white screen is perceived to be slower than 5 seconds of seeing the page build up, and it could be after, um, if you do have this terrible network connection, it's going to take 5 seconds. After one connect, uh, one second, we might have displayed like the article or the main part of the content or you know a, a lower resolution version of the image the user's requesting and that kind of thing shouldn't be underappreciated people who sort of say you know you should do progressive enhancement for no for users without javascript i i don't agree to that i think people who browse the web of javascript off are just asking for trouble really but we had a, an issue with the google chrome download page uh, where it had a little bit of JavaScript to kind of do a country detect and sort of skip you past, uh, so it would just give you the the localized version of Chrome that you were likely to need. And the JavaScript broke, 
like some other file owned by someone else changed or something, and all of a sudden the download Chrome button did nothing, absolutely nothing, and it's because it had a complete dependency on JavaScript. And it, it's oh wow. It, and you think that's a big deal, you know, for this is this is a major part of Google's business, and people are going and pressing on this thing. People who want actually have just, they've been convinced to use Chrome, they're pressing the button, they get absolutely nothing. Uh, and it would have been so easy just to provide a link, even to a page that listed all of the locales, or do the locale detection on the server, or, or whatever, and to be able to fall back to that, or fall back to that on a because people who are downloading Chrome might have a a really old browser. I mean, if you've just installed a, a virtual machine, for instance, and it's an old IE6 one, you're using IE6 to download Chrome. It's possible that they might have like less support than you're coding towards. Having falling back onto just sort of plain HTML is is a way to to hit loads of uh, loads more browsers a lot easier. And I'd advocate for browsers that aren't the latest couple of versions. Um, don't serve them JavaScript. Just don't serve them an empty JavaScript file or you know use some kind of loading mechanism to prevent that. Because if your site works without JavaScript, then it's just going to work and it's going to be so, it's going to be way less effort for you to, to, to test. Because um, you could just go, ah, oh, well, it's IE6, I'm just going to look at it. Yeah, it looks about right. Yeah, the hyperlinks work. You know, IE7 or IE8, don't serve them JavaScript. I don't even have to test my JavaScript. It's fine. It just works uh, like a normal web page does. That idea just seems so alien to me. It seems like, I mean, can you imagine doing progressive enhancement on the desktop, right? Like, let's try and support people that don't have virtual memory in their operating system or something. Like, it, it seems like such a an essential part of the kinds of applications that I want to build that to go back and, and do a lot more work to make it so they work without JavaScript seems like wasted effort for me. But I, So I'm not doing, like, just content displaying applications where there's lots of pages and, and things that would... I don't know. It's, it seems like it's a lot more interactive kind of stuff. Do you think that's a distinction where maybe it works well for sites with lots of content, like news things? Or this, this is the excuse I hear, right? Well, actually, the excuse I hear is uh, I'm building an app, so the rules don't apply to me, or you know, best <laughs> practice doesn't really mean anything to me. I, I, and I, I do agree that progressive enhancement isn't for every situation. You know, that there will come a time when it is not worth it. But I think most cases where it's not used is it's it should be used. So even on a, um, it depends. So this is the thing: it's like what, what's the difference between an interactive site and a, a non-interactive site? I mean, Wikipedia content site, right? That's that's definitely a site. But what about when I'm editing an article? Is that a is that an app now? Is that I mean, it's an interactive site now? What what about on a phone where I click to expand and contract sections of the page? That's I'm interacting with it. But where, where is the line? And I think. Uh, I think the line is drawn where progressive enhancement doesn't matter. It's, it, it, it comes in far too soon. I mean, think of something like the uh, Twitter site app, whatever you want to call it, the, the, the web app. Yeah, I was going to talk about Twitter. Yeah, they, they, they were basically, it was basically a JavaScript client to their API, and it was so slow. For, because it has to, you know, it downloads the HTML, which is, you know, there's not a lot there, so that's fine. And then it downloads the CSS and, you know, the imagery, and, and it's downloading the JavaScript, and then the JavaScript downloads, and it makes an API call, and then it does some execution work over that API call. It puts that into a template, and it displays some content. And they kind of move towards, like, well, I think a guy called Dan Webb, who is uh, an amazing guy, um, went to work there, and he was like, this is this is not good. I'm going to sort this out. And he, he changed it so the server would send HTML, which seemed like this really old idea, but it meant that all the browser has to do is, you know, it starts downloading the HTML and it can just display it. 
it, it doesn't have to wait for the whole page to download. It doesn't have to wait for the JavaScript to download. It doesn't have to wait for an API call. It doesn't have to wait for any execution. The user's getting content, and, and that's what it's about. It's all about performance. Um, and I disagree with the idea that it doubles up on work because a lot of the times when you do client-side templating and rendering, you could just be fetching some HTML from it. If you're going to fetch a JSON object and then you know run it through a template and then add that to a section of the document, you could just be fetching HTML. I mean, it's a version, this is a version to getting HTML from the server because it's not data, is it? It's view code or something. I think HTML is data. It's, it's semantic data. And if, if all you're going to do with it is render it in a template and then, you know, put it on the page, do that on the server because the server can cache that effort. Don't make every client do it. Um, yeah. One, one and, other thing I want to jump in here with is we, the episode before the jQuery episode, we talked to Brian Hogan about accessible websites. Hmm. And he talked about a lot of the, the readers and stuff there. And depending on how sophisticated the reader is and how it can, how it is able to interact with the DOM and interact with, uh, the browser itself, you know, the progressive enhancement can be very important there as well, just in the sense that, you know, it knows what to do with a link, but may not completely understand what's going on with the DOM in a single page app unless you've got this, uh, underlying level where it gets the initial HTML, pulls the source and, and knows what to do with it. Right. This is because screen readers are terrible pieces of software, and it's only recently that some of the open source um, efforts are actually creating good screen readers. And I, I really have no sympathy for the screen reader guys because it's the, the software is so expensive. Uh, these are people who need it, you know, can't afford to upgrade because it's so expensive. Um, and this idea that they, because the newer ones can can do JavaScript stuff, like you, yeah, mostly. You sh- yeah, or you you can work with it. You to mm-hmm. uh, put it put it this way: the web starts off accessible. You have to make it unaccessible. You know, it's like a blank page is accessible and fast. You know, if, if we, as developers, we make the web inaccessible and slow. You know, by doing stuff. So uh, if you're using semantic markup, you get a lot of the way there to accessibility. If you're using keyboard navigation, which you should be, because not just for screen reader users, you know, for just normal people, we think about. Uh, you know, there'll be people who can't use mice fair enough, but then there's the, I mean, think about the amount of keyboard shortcuts you use on the desktop, you know, it would be, it would be weird for the, the OSX to say, ah, you know what, we're, we're gonna drop keyboard shortcuts because they're only for people with accessibility needs, you know, and this, this is, so the, the same applies on, on, on the web, you know, we can, you know, get, get great benefit out of doing this, yeah. uh, not, not, not just for a screen reader users. One other thing I want to point out as an advantage to the progressive enhancement, at least in my mind, is that, uh, and I'm going to make a pretty big and wild confession here, and that is that I write bugs. And <clears throat> if I have a bug that makes my app fail to load some critical portion of the JavaScript, I still want it to work. And so with progressive enhancement, un- unless the you know the previous JavaScript totally just messes it up, um, there's still a link there. It's not a single page app or whatever anymore, but there's still a link there that they can click on and get to the next thing until I clean up my mess. Yeah. And that's why we use feature detection, right? I mean, that's, that's part of progressive enhancement. Does the, does the browser have this feature? If not, yeah, that's fine. Or oh, maybe we'll do feature, something else. Yeah. Feature enhancement with modernizer. Oh, that'll mm. make, that'll make your life so much better. Oh, do, do you know what? I know there's a bit of a, I mean, a bit of a, I know there's some, quite a few guys on the, the team who work on modernizer. I am a fan, but I'm not a fan of using it. Like I, I treat Modernizer as a wiki because uh, I don't want a script in the head of my page because a script in the head of the page is going to block uh, the p- rendering. 
So what I would do is I go to the, the GitHub page for, for Modernizer. I find the feature detect for the thing I want because I trust those guys to, to have the best feature detect on the web for that particular feature. And I just take that little bit of code and I put it in line in the head of the document. And so it's, you know, rather than a however many K external JavaScript file, it's just a few bytes in the head of the page. Just interesting. Way quicker rendering. But the I definitely want to come in on, on this and just say, you know, I, I hear a lot of people saying, look, my whole app is is written in JavaScript, you know, and then I have a backend that provides it data or whatever. And that makes sense. But, uh, you know, in a world where you don't have JavaScript or it doesn't act the way that you expect it to, having this underlying layer can really pay off. It, I, for me, it's all about speed. I, I, on my blog, I've got code examples, and I thought, well, why am I going to use the um, why am I going to use the client to do code highlighting? Because I can just do that on the server once and cache it, and I, then I'm not relying on. Uh, I, I I know it's going to be done in Python on the server once. It's not going to be done by you know hundreds of different user agents at different times that could go wrong. It just seems like the quicker and safer way. I, I think Jameson's trying it's, to chime in because sorry, I, I really want to hear the other point of view. No, I, I was just going to say that it, that that phrase. If my JavaScript doesn't load, I want my app to still work. Is just really alien to me because well, that's JavaScript not why I'm saying it's it's more. About, well, that, that's what Chuck said before. Yeah, that's what I um, said. Yeah. It's, it's not about working without JavaScript. Well, it, it's about working before JavaScript. Yeah. And if yeah. and if your JavaScript and as a convenience, when your JavaScript fails, it works. Or and it's not about your JavaScript failing because um, you know necessarily you wrote it badly, or that's what happened in the, the Google case, though. But uh, it, it's more like you know a new user agent comes out and has a or you know a browser you haven't tested for. It's it's so so the, the saying that I stole from I think it was some comedian, I, I, Christian Hallman popularized it is the the escalator thing. You know, if, if an elevator fails, it's useless. If an escalator fails. It's still stairs. It's you know you can still get up to the next floor, and I think that's what, how we should be building websites. One other point, I guess, in progressive enhancements' favor is that if you do progressive enhancement, it means that you get SEO for free. Uh, I, 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 a lot of I know Google will actually do some JavaScript work, and you can with a bit of extra effort sort of tell it about how the navigation works for your for your site. So I think that's yeah, the yeah, old, they're, they're old argument. Yeah, there. I mean, there are other ways around it, but mm. it is a bonus, I guess. I well, it's a diffi- if you if you're doing JavaScript stuff, if you're like recreating things like navigation, uh, like in JavaScript, then you it's down to you now to recreate a lot of browser behavior that you uh, you might take for granted. The, the lanyard example was uh, because of app cache, we had to do a lot of JavaScript work. It's still progressive enhancement; it still works without JavaScript, but JavaScript really had to take over. And in taking over, it took over navigations. And if you went to you scroll down a list of items and clicked oh that conference, and then it would do an AJAX thing, change the URL using push date, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And if you click back, uh, the thing that surprised me is oh I'm at the top of the page again because I've listened to that back event. And gone and fetched the data from a cache and, and rendered it. And I was like, oh, but I would have expected to be halfway down the page, back where I was. And it's like, oh, this is a bit of browser behavior that I now have to recreate because I'm not letting the browser handle the navigation itself. And you just build up collections of those things. You end up sort of re-implementing the browser in JavaScript uh, when it's actually sitting there for free. So I, I want to kind of tie this back to uh, application cache. Does mm. application cache short-circuit some of the need for progressive enhancement by having all of the JavaScript and everything else just right there on the machine so it can just bring it in and load it right up? Or, or I, is there still a need for it there? Uh, app cache, not so much, but I can see navigation controller getting rid of push date 
and good riddance to it because it's uh, it's a royal pain to use, especially because you, know, you, you when you start dealing with clicking back, etc. With um, as far as the the main layer of the browser is concerned, you'll click a link and it will be doing a fetch to this uh, cached asset and it will display it, and then you click back and it's just going to go back through its network stack. But in under the hood, in this navigation controller you've created, you can just get stuff from the cache. You can uh, do what you want with that. You can provide like an instant response. But as far as the on the client on the, the the main browser view, you don't have to recreate things like the restoring the scrolling position because as far as the browser is concerned, it's just making a network request. It's just getting it back really really fast. All right, sounds good. All right, well then let's go ahead and do the picks. Jameson, mm-hmm. you want to start us off? I will start. So my first pick is, I'm, I'm pretty late to this, but whatever. I can still like stuff after other people like things. It's just Arduino in general. I haven't done much with hardware in my life. So just the ability for me to wire up a breadboard into a button and then press that button and an LED turns on, it feels like I'm a wizard. Uh, it's really fun. And I've, I've spent lots of money and lots of time in the past couple of weeks on Arduino stuff. I have all these project ideas and I've already... Made some cool stuff. So if if you haven't done hardware things, um, it's Arduino makes it incredibly easy. I don't know enough about electronics, but I I mean there are tons of guides out there and stuff. So I'm, I'm probably the hardware version of the person that only knows jQuery, um, but that's that's fine. Arduino <laughs> is the jQuery of hardware. I'll tell you what. I, well, I, I, I don't know. Maybe the Arduino is more like the, the something a bit lower level. If you want the jQuery for hardware, uh, makeymakey.com is absolutely brilliant. So it's just the, you know, you, you attach electrodes to objects and then it can sense when you touch them because you complete the circuit. So the, their example they've got on the homepage is you can create a piano out of bananas. Uh, just because you, your, your machine will get the signals of when these, uh, contacts go off and then you can do something with that. So on a, it, something, I guess it's probably for absolute beginners or like, I, if I had kids, I would have I would give them a makey-makey, you know, so I'd get them interested in sort of building stuff with electronics. It's it's absolutely wonderful. Yeah, makey-makey is sweet. They they implement keyboard drivers, so you can just plug it in and it automatically just sends key commands to your computer. So that's, mm. yeah, I guess that is a little bit higher level. But still, Arduino is sweet. Makey-makey mm. is also sweet. My only other pick is just this web app called Draftin. It's just an app for working on drafts of any kind of writing you want to do. Um, and it's got really good support for comments from other people and, and I don't know, it's just, it's just really slick. It's a gorgeous application for helping you write. So those are my two picks. Awesome. Mm. All right, I'll go ahead and go next. So my first pick, um, I spent the last week working in, well, I wasn't working. So I went to Lone Star Ruby Conference, and then after Lone Star Ruby Conference, the other Ruby Rogues and I from the Ruby Rogues podcast got together for a retreat. And, uh, oh, we had a great time. You know, our, my assistant, Mandy, was there and she, you know, took good care of us. And one of the other rogues' wives was also there and took care of us. And we just had a good time. One of the things that we did, we played a game called Robo Rally, which is this game where you have little robots that start out on the board. And, uh, then you basically have five registers to put, uh, instructions in. And then your, your robots um, move according to the instructions you put in. And then the boards have conveyor belts and they have gears that turn you around and they have lasers on them. And your robot also has a laser on it. And so at the end of each turn, you wind up firing your laser. And if you shoot somebody, then you do them damage. And anyway, it was really, really fun. 
and it I think it's right up your alley if you're a programmer. So anyway, I'm going to pick Robo Rally as just a, a fun, fun game. We really did have a terrific time. And then um, the other pick I have, we sat down and we recorded a podcast, and we were just sitting around the table and, and talking, and that was way fun. And the way that we did it was I opened up Adobe Audition, and I plugged in my Blue Yeti microphone. And uh, the Blue Yeti microphone has a knob on it that allows you to do bi-directional, omnidirectional, single direction, and I don't remember what the other one is. But uh, anyway, so we just set it to omnidirectional, so it picked up everything, and then we would all just talk toward the middle of the table, and it worked out terrific. So my other two picks are Adobe Audition and the Blue Yeti microphone. Jake, what are your picks? I'm going to go with a, a Cody one to begin with. The... Um async and uh, the, the Q-Async library and generators. So generators in JavaScript are uh, very similar to how they are in Python, having this way where you can sort of uh, retain the state inside a function uh, and, and kind of make it start again later on. And you, all the examples I've seen for this previously have been like generating the, you know, a series of numbers or something. And I, I was kind of like, oh, that's fine to, to make iterable uh, iteratables, but... Uh, I saw this example of, of how you could use it with uh, DOM promises, well, any promise library, uh, and Q has a, a great example of it, of how you can ha- have a like a promise that looks like it waits synchronously until it completes, but it does it in, a, in an async way. Uh, it's a, quite, a, quite a Cody example, but it kind of blew my mind when I saw it. I hadn't thought of, of using uh, promises and generators in that way. That's my second pick. I want to go with... Um, I'm going to be a company man and 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 talk about this uh, a Google Plus post uh, on scroll bottlenecks. So uh, the the link will be in the show notes. But it's it's we're adding something into Chrome Canary to kind of highlight areas of the page that are going to be uh, scroll bottlenecks. This is especially useful on on mobile because uh, we've got a big problem with scrolling, especially if you have things like sc- uh, touch listeners. Because as soon as you've got a touch listener on the page, every time you move your finger or whatever, we have to go back into JavaScript land and do something and tell you about that. And that creates a, uh, that, that really slows things down. So this, this new feature that's gone into Chrome Canary, it will highlight the areas of the page where that slowdown is going to occur. So you can maybe go, oh, that's, that's too big an area. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I can actually limit that. So that's, that's my two picks. Awesome. I have uh, an addition to my picks. I forgot. Can I give it real quick? Yeah, go for it. So it's just a library for working with Arduino in using JavaScript. If you're intimidated by doing the, the C or C++ stuff that you can do with Arduino natively, there's um, a serial port library for manipulating stuff called Johnny5. Um, and you just you just plug the Arduino into your computer. There's a USB cord. And then you can just talk to it in a node REPL or run scripts that control it. Um, so that's really helpful, and it's fun to prototype higher-level things with that, too. The, the founders of Lanyard, uh, Simon Willison and uh, Natalie Down, they, they've, um, they've got a hamster, and they use an Arduino uh, to hook it up to the hamster wheel so they can track uh, when and how fast the hamster runs on the wheel, which I thought was an absolutely amazing <laughs> use of, of Arduino. That's so cool. That's awesome. That's like the, the quantified life, but for hamsters. Mm. All right. Um, well, let's go ahead and wrap up the show then. Thanks for coming, Jake. It was a terrific discussion. And I, yeah, this thank was you for having me. Fantastically informative. Um, yeah. I think you did a great job of explaining AppCache stuff and, and of explaining your ideas on progressive enhancement. Thank you. 
And thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. So I, I, I apologize for everyone listening. I kind of get excited about stuff and I start talking really fast. So I, I do apologize for that. Th- those are the best episodes. You're energetic and it's awesome. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, yeah, thanks for coming. We'll catch you all next week. See ya.